0: Welcome to the Remote Warfare Programme podcast. In this episode, we have a recording of a panel from the Conceptualising Remote Warfare Conference, which the Remote Warfare Programme held in collaboration with the University of Kent on the 28th of February and 1st of March. The conference pulled together a wide range of experts from the military, government, academia and civil society
1: to discuss the past, present and future of remote warfare as well as the implications of this approach. We couldn't have organized a conference without the support of the Conflict Analysis Research Center at the University of Kent and the British International Studies Association. If you like what you hear on this podcast, you can hear more panels in our upcoming episodes, and you can read more depth, in more
0: depth about the topics in our upcoming book, released in early 2020. For now, enjoy the podcast. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm now
1: chairing this panel, so if it goes terribly, it's because I have two minutes' notice. Um, (laughs)
2: Or if it goes brilliantly, it's because you've got two minutes' notice.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either or, we'll see. Um, So it will be the same format as yesterday. Everyone will have 12 minutes. I'll wave frantically when you have two minutes left. And then we'll have about half an hour for Q&A. So um, we'll start with Dr. Peter Lee
2: who you have. have oh, you, you're fine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Take the floor. took yes. 12 to minutes and I'll wave it too. Is, is Andrew Mumfers still here? Yeah. He thought he plugged the of shamelessness yesterday. <laughs> 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 right. Um, in, the, in the time we have got, I've put some words up there from just one of the, the pages in my group that I'll be mentioning again, and a lot, simply because, Uh, It is probably the defining work of of my academic career, regardless of what I do afterwards. There's going to be a panel at half eleven, and I can't remember who's doing it, but it's touching on the question of seeing everything from um, from nowhere, to which this could be about, and by nobody, because the crews have been absent from so much of the discourse that, that somehow this stuff just happens. So that is me sitting, this close to the pilot and the sensor operator in the seconds leading up to seeing a jihadist in Syria on a moving motorbike, killed in real time before my eyes. I'm an ex-military chaplain, I've conducted 100 funerals, I've been with people as they have died. Nothing prepared me for seeing someone killed in real time. Or the reaction of the sensor operator, just are they engaged? Silence. And then at the 30 seconds later, at the impact, or, 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 or splash as they call it, there's this <coughs> exhalation of air, exhalation of air from the, the sensor. Heart rates of the scale, adrenaline pumping, and so on. So I'm going to, in a time that I've got, <coughs> just say a bit about the, the research. I'm going to talk about killing itself and the distance paradox, um, and then a couple of human responses in a limited time. Research has been going on for years. Uh, those of you who have been listening to me for years, thank you for that. There's a little bit more to go. Um, but I conducted 90 interviews, more than half with serving people as they're doing a junior job, uh, 24 with spouses and partners, and 21 with uh, former um, members of the Reaper Force. I got weeks of embedded research where I was sitting in the ground control stations at Creech, the Royal Air Force, not the United States Air Force, Royal Air Force at Creech and Area Waddington, um, so I was sitting in the ground control stations as they were conducting operations and um, I tried to capture, take the reader very much, a story time. this is not a scholarly reflection in this book, this is I'm driving out the road to Creech, passing through security, sitting in morning briefing, going out to the GCS. Getting the air-condition hitting you, watching someone killed, um, and so on. Uh, so it had a personal impact on me, which uh, took me a long time to realise. But now I, I have to acknowledge. Um, I stopped being a military chaplain 11 years ago because I was impacted by the Iraq War. The first time I saw someone being killed, I now know I had the perfect hallucination. Of factory response prompted hallucination, mental trauma. Um, these are just some of the wider things I'm going to be doing, working on for years now. But today I'm going to talk about the the uh, moral injury and some stuff about empathy, uh, and uh, and the rest will be for years ahead. How does it work? I think one of the things, easiest things, will be for me to, to show this two and a half minute video. It does show a strike. You don't see any, clearly, any, any bloodshed, but it clearly happened. And this, the government released this in September 17, very kindly, a few weeks after I started writing one of my chapters about this. So if you want to know the whole story, because I, I was interviewing the pilot, and he said, we had a really interest, I phoned him, uh, on, uh, on uh, Sunday and he said we had a really interesting event a couple of days ago if you can come into the squadron I'll get permission I'll show you the video, not this bit but the full workup talking you through it um, and so the, the chapter has the voices of the, the crew involved in the context, it's uh, uh, Abu Kamal uh, in Syria, there's a crew in the ground control station and they're flying the Reaper and all they know is from the intelligence sources, they're expecting something major to happen in the area, they don't know exactly where, when, or who, but they're looking. But this is a, an inexperienced crew, they're not fully qualified to take shots. So the crew that does take a shot, they're in another part of the building, preparing for a separate operation that afternoon. They get called to go down, because um, the, crew has star- the, the, the first crew has started to see people in an area, all walking in one direction. And they just thought this looks odd because people mill around and as they flew further over they realized that they were being herded by by men in black with rifles and at this point they thought we'll get the other crew just in case so the other crew gets the call a few seconds hand over they're sitting in and they're now watching and they get to this area and one of them pilot even jokes <coughs> All we need now is a roundabout or a crossroads and we've got an execution. Because it seen so many executions and we knew that was what was happening. And sure enough, they flew over, found a major crossroads, two-story building overlooking it, spikes on top to dominate the ground, keep control of your population. And the crowd are being herded in to observe an execution. And they watch pulls up, um, prisoners taken out, they're just about to see it happening and they're sitting thinking, what on earth is going on? How do we s- well they know what's going on? How do we stop what is going on? So in terms of, so they're now looking at this, this building here. There's there's one side of there, one there. So the, the light is reaching uh, some of this out. You can see the dense crowd which goes round a vast area, and then soldiers, fighters in the middle, and underneath these redacted areas, which has got all the interesting information. Um, <laughs> and speeds that are the prisoners and they are looking and the pilot describes amazingly how he said it's almost as if my brain was narrowing in and i couldn't think and we couldn't see any way of using a weapon to stop this it wouldn't kill civilians as well and someone mentioned yesterday about the relationship with the chaos the combined air or operation center the uk red card holder so a british wing commander Um, She was watching this, and she had flown with this crew, She's from that squadron, and she from thousands of miles away had the idea, if you hit this guy or this guy with a certain setting on the hellfire, and by the way, that juddering there was caused by the missile firing off the aircraft, so it's about 30 seconds to impact. Her reasoning was, as long as you strike about here, you'll kill him, you won't knock down this this concrete wall which is defending all the civilians, but get it wrong by 80 centimetres and you kill two dozen civilians. So if you ever think you've had a pressurised day at work, I'd invite you to recalibrate what you think of as pressure. And see, this had the desired effect, which was psychological actually, everyone's running away, disrupted the execution, and so on. They then do some after and, and uh, Battle Damage Assessment said look to see is there anyone in the front of the building that was in the that they hit, but actually the, the um, concrete stayed in place and then once they'd done that, handed back to the original crew and they were back upstairs less than 10 minutes from working on maps to that environment, absorbing the information, all the communications, making a decision, firing looking afterwards um, that's snapshot of what happens, interjections from thousands of miles away in the command centre and so on. So that's how it works. And by the way, a couple of weeks ago, HD was rolled out. So now you can count the nuts on a wheel. Uh, Before, they could count that someone had died measured because of the blood pooling around the body. That is intimacy with the people you're killing. This is not dots on a screen. Um, So on killing... I'll quickly run through a few things because uh, I don't have much time, but Dave Grossman is an army colonel in America turned psychologist, and he talks about killing and how over the centuries, millennia, physical distance and psychological distance have grown together from from spears to arrows to rifles to artillery. And on the whole, distance is sufficient for gunners (laughs) aim at grid references they cannot see. Submariners fire torpedoes at ships, not only the people at ships. Pilots launch missiles at the targets. The visual acuity that the Reaper people are, have is such that what they can see, and this is my favourite comparison, is a far clearer sight of the person they kill than an archer at Agincourt 600 years ago. So the distance paradox that I mentioned is that as the physical distance has grown, Across continents, the visual, psychological, emotional distance is back to about 100 yards. And let me give you a historical comparison. First World War, James McCudden, famous, uh, famous pilot. When I got to within 100 yards, pressed my triggers, saw pieces of three ply wood falling from from the Hun's fuselage. depersonalization of the Hun, not the person. Um, the LBG went into a blade, and then it, it it was wrecked. He's flying at ten thousand feet. This is three thousand meters away. And he still doesn't say um, I shot the jet, it was I shot the Hun, depersonalising language. And by the way, for anyone who thought that fairness, I've said this a lot, anyone who thought fairness is part of war, of course not. His doctrine was to sneak up and shoot them in the back. Venice is not and has never been an aspect of war, but he's a hundred yards away when he shoots. But when the person dies, or two die, he's 3,000 meters away. World War II, Leonard Cheshire bombed Cologne for 30,000 feet. Again, huge distances. So what are some of the responses? Well, from a human side, powerlessness, to intervene sometimes, visual trauma, moral injury, on the plus side, professional fulfillment, operational effect, protecting people, they're in the fight, job satisfaction. Why are some people burnt out after a year and others can last six or seven? Some is desensitization, there's many factors. One of the uncomfortable ones is 2% of the population are psychopaths and two are highly empathetic as I Those who sit here probably have a greater resistance than those here, and, but most people sit in the middle and you want folk to have empathy because it motivates them to protect their brains, to protect their colleagues. But it is an interesting factor. And someone actually came to me and said, I'm glad you told me this because I don't react like everyone else. But my heart rate doesn't change. I said, I'm good at what I do, but I realize I've got an advantage. Um, Here, just an example. This is paradox. So he's away, potholing, canoeing, doing all the things with his family, with the school, goes into the office and watching someone have their head cut off. And by the way, it's quite a slow process. Other responses, I'll, I'll maybe put another couple up then I'll, then I'll stop because you'll get the point. Um, I've killed from conventional aircraft and from the Reaper, the body's reactions are the same, interestingly. Your mouth goes dry, hairs in the back of the neck stand up, everything goes tense. You get that sick feeling. You know what you're about to do. Um, you can have these slides, but I'll just pick this one out. This was right after his first strike. We shot the check, and these are just lifted straight from straight from one of the chapters, which is in the wrong book. We shot the checkpoint. The missile went exactly what it was supposed to do. Was a normal feeling. Even talking about it now, I feel my stomach turning. It was gut-wrenching that I've now taken people's lives. It's a weird feeling. And there's, there's lots there. Guilt, someone who blew half a leg off didn't kill who was meant to kill. thinks about that every night. Um, there's someone else, what's father and son, come home, handed a baby. Eight minutes after they left work. And so I'll just leave that there. There'll be some questions later. All the answers (laughs) are (laughs) in (laughs) here. And I heard this week I've got a paperback
0: version coming in August. And I really would
1: recommend that everyone read the book. Okay, so now we'll go back to the original order. So if Dr Max Brookman-Burn. Yeah. Okay, um, so the purpose of this paper is to think about some of the incompatibilities um, between the framework of international human rights law um, and remote warfare, and to reflect on some of the possible um, avenues for development of uh, human rights law in the face of growing remoteness. Uh, so remote warfare raises various issues in terms of human rights law, um, but today I'm going to focus on the issue of jurisdiction within human rights. So this is the threshold that needs to be satisfied before it can be said that a state owes obligations to an individual um, through human rights. Um, obviously, states don't owe obligations to all humans per se. They only um, owe obligations where certain factors exist that render that person within their jurisdiction. Um, If a state has jurisdiction over an individual, then they'll owe them obligations in terms of their human rights. And of course, if they don't don't fit within that jurisdiction, then they'll owe them no obligations. Um, So a tiny number of states and commentators suggest that um, human rights jurisdiction is entirely territorial, that states only owe obligations and human rights to individuals present on their territory. But the um, more common position, uh, which is pretty much universal, is that human rights jurisdiction can exist extraterritorially, so when a state acts outside of its own territory. And jurisdiction, um, in this regard, is based generally on the level of control that the state exercises over an individual. Um, This does generally Uh, as a rule manifest in terms of territoriality, but nonetheless it can arise when the state acts outside of its territory. But difficulties arise in terms of establishing jurisdiction when the state does act extraterritorially, and these become more acute with the the less control that is exercised by that state over the individual um, in question. So, of course, remote warfare, you can see, represents a particular challenge in terms of human rights jurisdiction um, and the effectiveness of human rights due to the radical removal of a state's presence um, in regards to the people that are um, affected by remote warfare. And this is this particularly manifests for my purposes in relation to the use of remote targeted killing. so with drones, where we do have this kind of extreme removal of control. So... The extent to which human rights law can account for remote warfare really depends on the way in which jurisdiction um, is uh, conceived, the way in which it's interpreted. So what I'm gonna do is talk a little bit about the way the law is developed in relation to human rights jurisdiction, and then think about how this kind of fits with remote warfare and where we can likely see it develop. Um, in the case of Bankovich, the, court, the European Court of Human Rights took a particularly um, restrictive approach to jurisdiction. Um, it recognized that jurisdiction could exist extraterritorially, but nonetheless required such a high level of um, control over individuals that it was um, very difficult to establish that someone fell within the jurisdiction of a state acting extraterritorially. So it was argued by the applicants that by virtue of them having been affected by uh, NATO bombing in Belgrade, they came within the jurisdiction of the NATO states carrying out the bombing. But the court (coughs) rejected this and stated that the use of lethal force in and of itself couldn't produce uh, jurisdiction as far as human rights was concerned. (coughs) So you have this situation, according to the court, where jurisdiction can only be satisfied where a state has such effective control that it can secure and respect all the rights under the convention rather than just specific ones. So in the case of bombing, of course, the right to life is very clearly implicated but other rights within the, the, um, the convention aren't. And as such, jurisdiction wasn't established. Since Bankovich, there have been various cases within the European Court of Human Rights that have changed this, or at least reduced this threshold. And the most prominent is probably that of al-Skani, which is a case involving six Iraqi civilians um, killed by UK forces um, in detention and security operations in Iraq. Um, And in that case, the European Court opened up jurisdiction to include situations where a state exercises physical power and control over an individual, though without elaborating really on what that might be. Um, And in discussing physical power and control, the court referred only to decisions which established jurisdiction on the basis of detention or the exercise of control over a small area in which a person was uh, present when their rights were impacted. And in the case itself, the courts, rather than claiming that lethal force was sufficient to establish jurisdiction, um, based it on the exercise of public powers that the UK were carrying out in Iraq at the time. So lethal force was um, in that situation where it could have been used, if it was gonna be able to be, um, for establishing jurisdiction wasn't. And as a result of this, many people have argued um, that al-Skani Um, prevents us from claiming that uh, the use of lethal force in and of itself can establish jurisdiction. But I don't think it's fair to say that the court specifically ruled out this possibility. And indeed, there have been various other cases, both at the European Court and um, in other international tribunals where lethal force does appear to have been sufficient to establish jurisdiction. Um, In the English courts, this question came particularly present in the case of Al-Sadoun, uh, which was a case concerning Iraqi civilians shot and killed, again, during British um, security operations. And when the, co- the case went to the High Court, it was held by Mr Justice Leggett that, quote, using force to kill is the ultimate exercise of physical power, uh, physical control over another human being. And on that basis, lethal force was sufficient to establish jurisdiction for the purposes of um, the right to life. Um, this obviously <laughs> represents a move away from Alscany and the need for there to be some degree of, kind of physical containment or detention over an individual before their right to life is implicated. However, at the Court of Appeal, this aspect of the judgment was overturned and the court instead held that um, for physical power and control to provide a basis for jurisdiction, there must be, quote, an element of control of the individual prior to the use of lethal force. The reason given for this was that in al the European Court hadn't allowed jurisdiction to be established on the basis of lethal force and this was a question best left to them. I was hopeful that um, al was going to work its way through the Supreme Court and then to the European Court of Human Rights but I'm told that that's not going to happen unfortunately. Um, so the question remains uh, unclear. I think there is... Um, There remains issues as to whether jurisdiction can manifest through the use of lethal force, though I think the consensus does appear to be on (coughs) following the status quo that there is no ability to establish jurisdiction on the basis of lethal force in and of itself. And I think here we can see a real incompatibility between uh, human rights law and remote warfare. Obviously, remote warfare is typified by the absence of control and an ultra-light footprint. Um, Nonetheless... It's, uh, I think, as Peter was just talking about, as as this kind of the distance increases, actually the proximity kind of uh, narrows. And actually, in a sense, there's this kind of ethereal level of control that drones allow over the people who are being targeted. Um, So I think this presents a real, a clear disconnect between the doctrine of um, human rights jurisdiction as requiring um, actual physical control prior to the use of lethal force and the reality of what's possible um, in remote operations. Um, So I think as a result of this disconnect, we're likely to, or hopefully, we'll see the law develop um, to account for this situation. And there's three likely avenues for development. So the first is the maintenance of the status quo. The kind of re-emphasis that jurisdiction requires some degree of actual physical control akin to detention or control over a narrow space in which um, a person is present before they're targeted. We see this approach um, within the European Court of Human Rights and uh, the Court of Appeal in England. Um, it has a large degree of doctrinal support. You know, the jurisdiction clauses present within human rights treaties seem to favor this approach. Um, but it does leave this concerning gap um, between the practice of remote warfare and the, um, the doctrine of the law. The second approach is an evolution of the status quo, so maintaining this needs to establish jurisdiction um, uh, based on physical power and control, but a reinterpretation of what physical power and control is in the manner of uh, Mr Justice Leggett in al Sadoun, such that physical power and control manifest in the ability of this, a, a state to target someone. So, you know, the existence of a drone in and of itself would establish a jurisdictional link between the state using the drone and the person targeted. Um, So it's not a departure from the law, it's a reinterpretation of the law in light of current practice. And that's the approach taken in al sadoun and I think it is an approach that is present in other international courts. Um, It was very clearly um, formed the basis of the the decision in the Alejandra case Um, in front of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, where targeting a plane um, was sufficient to establish a jurisdictional link between Cuba, who was shooting it down, and the people on the plane uh, who were killed, and this was outside any state's territory. Um, The final approach is much more revolutionary, and that involves dispensing with the jurisdiction requirement in relation to certain specific rights. specifically those rights where they create negative obligations, so in the right to life this is the, the right not to kill pe- or the right for people not to be killed yeah, intentionally. Um, where the right to life requires a respect to that right which is held inherently by all individuals then there'd be no need to establish jurisdiction. Now this is the approach that you might recognise in the work of Marko Milanovic who advocates quite strongly this um, approach to human rights jurisdiction in terms of in um, respect of uh, negative rights, but it has limited doctrinal support. I think it's a really nice um, reading of human rights jurisdiction, um, but it's certainly one that requires the most significant jump in terms of the development of the law. I think it probably also is the one that's able to account for remote operations uh, most adequately, but it does, it, it's difficult to see how the, the law would develop organically in this way. Um, so, I guess just to wrap up that um, ramble about jurisdiction, uh, I think it's fair to say that the status quo continues to dominate, and certainly with Al-Sidun um, appearing not to be headed to any kind of uh, Supreme Court or uh, European Court of Human Rights, we probably won't get an answer anytime soon. I think um, it is fair to say that there is a disconnect between the, the practice of remote warfare, the potential practice of remote warfare, certainly, um, and the doctrine of human rights. And I think that as time goes by and we see an expansion of remote operations, it's going to become impossible to ignore the disconnect <coughs> and continue um, advocating for the status quo. Um, but we'll see what happens. Very much speculative. Thank you. Okay, next we have
0: Delina Godja. So I changed um, the topic of what I'm going to present because there has been a very recent development at the European Union level recently, um, which is the new budget for defense is going to be 13 billion uh, and it's going to be a a new prerogative. So this is the first time that the EU is openly investing into military development, military technology. So another uh, a short um, spoiler alert, I will present the European Union as the solution to a problem here and not as the problem which is uh, not the most popular idea uh, not just in the UK but but for us on the continent as well it's not the best of times. So the glass is half full it's complex and we, it's complex and we have a lot to do but I am convinced we are on the right track. French Defence Minister Florence Parly at the Munich Security Conference last week um, said that French presence in the G5 Sahel countries, which are here, um, will improve the security situation in the region. More than six years after French troops intervened in Mali to stop Islamist militants advancing on Bamako through Operation Serval first and Operac- Operation Barkan later, the northern region of um, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Mali have been especially hard hit. Um, France, which is the former colonial power in the region, has deployed, has kept actually 4,500 troops in the region and has contributed to the creation of a G5 joint Sahel force, which is represented here. Um, this force has been hobbled by delays in disbursing money, and there's been a lot of coordination problems and I mean we could add all the issues that were mentioned yesterday during the security um, uh, force assistance um, that have been problematic for this region as well. Uh, I would add that on November 17 last year around 1 a.m. Paris time, um, Niamey Air Base in Niger lost contact with a Reaper drone belonging to Barkhane, um which was returning to base after completing a mission. This was the first time that the French and European public alike acknowledged um, openly the remote warfare French presence in the area. Mm -hmm. And as of July 2018, one French Reaper drone has joined the Southern France Cognac Air Air Base um, and four others have joined um, Niamey in order to increase the capabilities of Operation Barkhane. As for US presence, Um, Niger Air Base 201 in Agadez, uh, is a future hub for armed drones and other aircraft, will be completed this year. Apparently it has been delayed, but it will be ready soon. Um, And uh, as for um, US acknowledgement, public acknowledgement of US covert operations in the region, uh, the Tongo Tongo ambush, which was mentioned yesterday in 2017, Um, opened the eyes of um, the American public. Um, Four US soldiers were killed by IS in the Greater Sahara, and the New York Times reported um, soon after that that the Pentagon is considering withdrawing nearly all American commandos from Niger. Now, as they are doing this, and it seems like they're doing this very slowly, um, they are also investing more on drone operations through the construction of the Agadez base, for example. I'd like to show you a video of how it's being built, but it's, it's a bit boring. It's just a <laughs> necklace up north. Um, the evolution of the conflicts from this French presence and US presence um, is pointing towards more responsibility being given to the drones and less to ground troops. Um, Nigerian authorities, so the authorities of, of Niger, especially where most of these operations are being conducted, say that there are no defense agreements and that US and France are just using Nigerian territory as a hotspot for operations in, in the rest of the region. But um, in June 2018, French and US, US special forces took part in a fight next to the Libyan border and this was publicly reported. So, I mean, it's very much linked to the discussions that you have within the remote warfare program where <laughs> uh, you can choose not to be transparent, but then a journalist will report about your activities and this will hijack your public narrative at home. Um, in addition, I will, i mean, I'm Italian, I'll also mention Italy, um, is not a massive Italian intervention, but um, both Italy and Niger have signed an agreement and this was mostly um, to combat to combat migrant smuggling in the area, but it seems like Italian um, industry firm Leonardo is also deeply involved. And so what is what, what are industries doing there, military industries, what, how are they exactly involved? Um, so it seems like US and European publics have taken stock of the recent developments. The European Union is also moving, moving steps towards being more involved in the region, but um, information within the region still lags behind. So I've got two sentences from two uh, Nigerian journalists. The first says, uh, a lot of Nigerian uh, feel like me, um, deep sadness um, of, ha- of having to read on the New York Times in order to be informed of what happens in their own country. Um, our Niger is not a federal state of the United States. And then RFI Afrique, already in 2014, reports that um, this is not perceived as being a good thing because this will only bring um, more more terrorist rage to the area. And it will be more problematic for the people living around Agadez, for example. So um, the, I mean, we have reports of what is happening in the neighborhoods around. And the people don't seem to be happy. And the local authorities are not happy either. Um, and they perceive that they're more likely to be, to be targeted. So the paradox is, is quite evident, I think. Uh, power players in the region are still interventionists, but they are unwilling to bear the human costs of such intervention. Um, and the remote presence in the region is perceived as neo-colonial. I would say that, and this is my argument and maybe doesn't make much sense, but I think it does. Uh, (laughs) I would say that the European Union would be the ideal peace broker um, in the area. This partially depends um, on the fact that European member states have a strong interest in being involved in the region because of terrorist threat, because of migrant smuggling. uh, And so they feel like it's in this area that they have to fight a key battle to back off nationalists interests at home. So if we're able to counteract illegal migration, if we're able to not have any terrorists back um, into our continent, then we will be able uh, to keep the European Union united still, even after Brexit. So uh, in addition, European concern and European interest in the region has been there since 2008 and European Union leaders uh, are extremely proud that they started this without, uh, be- before it was a problem. So the EU already supports concrete regional led security initiatives um, 100 million to establish, it, they, they contributed to establishing the G5 style joint force. There are uh, three common security and defense policy missions, uh, European <coughs> CSDP they are called, um, and they are planning to, to, to create uh, a fourth one. Um, their role is very interesting and it could, it could get even better, I think, through the European Defence Fund because, I mean, this fund, th- they're going to go ahead with the fund, is going to be approved in Parliament very soon, um, and it is 13 billion, which, you know, to U.S. eyes means nothing. Uh, but for Europe, Europe will, will, will become the fourth, um, the European Union will become the fourth um, military investor within the EU so you'd have you know the UK France Germany and the EU now in terms of investment so it's it's pretty big for us um, but their role could be more of a coordinate coordinating role amongst all the interests of member states of US presence of local authorities and because they know the territory better they could be more engaged on civilian rather than military mission. Um, And they could use this defence fund in order to to monitor developments, gather data. This would be particularly useful in order to to be able to assess properly and then intervene properly. Um, So I think that Brussels should focus on regulating how the missions are conducted and centre its attention on coordinating and providing assistance rather than directly engaging. Uh, the EU's integrated strategy for the Sahel evolves around the idea that security, development and governance, three key words, are inherently intertwined. And it's perhaps also because of this European framing of the issue that um, the G5 joint force also bears security and development as its crest. So. Just to conclude, um, while remote warfare becomes normalised in the Sahel, European countries should invest in the EU as a stabilising force, also through this increased defence budget. Thank Thank you.